Our scripture lesson this morning for the gospel, for the uh, for our sermon text, comes from the book of Hebrews, the eleventh chapter, beginning in the twenty ninth verse, and going through the second chap- verse of the twelfth chapter. Hear now the word of God. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as if it were dry land. But when the Egyptians attempted to do the same, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after they'd been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had received the spies in peace. And what more should I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched raging fire, escaped the edge of the sword, won strength out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received their dead by resurrection. Others were tortured, refusing to accept release in order to obtain a better resurrection. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned to death. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. They were about, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, persecuted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. Yet all these, though they were commended for their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better so that they would not, without it, be made perfect. Therefore, Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that clings to us so closely. And let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of joy that was set before him endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. This is the word of the Lord. This morning we are continuing to talk about faith as our scripture lessons have had us thinking about in these last few weeks. And so we continue to talk about faith. And at the beginning I would remind you of a definition that the book of Hebrews gives us for faith earlier in the 11th chapter. We find these words. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Let's think about those words for a minute. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. If we look at the first part of that, that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, I think we first need to pause with the idea of hope. When we talk about hope in the Christian sense, we're not using it as a synonym for the word wish, which is usually how we mean the word hope. We hope we might get such and so for Christmas or we hope that our team wins on Saturday morning when that blessed time of year finally rolls around and college football season starts again. We hope for things and we use that word hope often as a synonym for wish. But from a faith standpoint, that's not how the Bible uses the word hope. When we talk about hope in a Christian sense, we're talking about something that is real Something that we can put our hope in. Something that's already known. 
an outcome that's already been determined. And because of that, we can put our hope in that thing, the assurance of things hoped for. Then, as Christians, understanding faith in this way, we can say that then faith is the assurance of the things we know to already be done. The assurance of an outcome we already know. And then the second part of that is the conviction of things not seen. In other words, the things that we can't see, the things we can't verify outside of our own experience, the things we can't prove by any physical means, any scientific means, something we can't verify outside of our own experience. Faith is the assurance of the things hoped for and the conviction, the conviction of what we can't see. It's real. We can't see it. But God can convict us and we can be convinced that it is real. If we think of that definition and apply it, for example, to the idea that God offers a relationship with us. Again, hope is not a synonym for wish because we know through Jesus Christ, God does offer us a relationship. We know it to be true. It's something we can trust is true. It was something. It is something we can put our hope in, even though we can't verify it outside of ourselves. We can be assured of it. We can be convinced of it, even though it can't be seen. This is kind of what we're talking about. Faith in this sense, and the goodness of God, and the presence of God, and the faithfulness of God, of God offering himself to us in Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews, to illustrate this point, he lifts up heroes of the Old Testament, these giants of the faith in God's interaction with God's people. He lifts up people and says, see, look at this person. Look at the faith they had and look what they did. Look at this person and the faith they had and what they did. So he's using and grounding this idea of faith in the earliest stories of interactions between God and God's people. So I've talked about faith in a grand sense, but I would imagine that most of you have exhibited faith in ways that you might not have thought about. For example, how many of you have ever flown on an airplane? You don't have to. I thought most of it's a fairly common experience. I'm not a great flyer, as Ellen will attest. I'm kind of nervous. I've not done it enough to where it becomes comfortable. I'm always worried that something's going to happen at the TSA checkpoint because I have such a common name. I'm always worried that I forget to take my shoes off or leave something in my pocket. I'm always worried that the pilot um, is going to suddenly come down with some illness. I, I, I play through these things in my mind. There's one particular experience of flying that always stands out to me. It was right after Ellen and I were married, the day after we were married. We were going to the Bahamas on a trip, and the cheapest way to get there, we were in Greenville, South Carolina. And believe it or not, it was cheaper for us to buy a plane ticket in Greenville, fly from Greenville to Charlotte, and from Charlotte to the Bahamas. It was cheaper to do that than it was just to drive to Charlotte and get on that same airplane. And... Me being me, that's what we did. Now, I don't know if you're real familiar with geography of the upstate in that part of North Carolina, but Greenville and Charlotte are pretty close together. And I joked that, that we were, the, the airplane we took 
it looked like a 15-passenger van with wings. It was small. And this was before 9-11 with all of the extra um, security that airplanes have now. And separation between the passenger compartment and the 15 or so seats was a curtain. It was a blue curtain. I remember it because I was thinking it did not look substantial enough to me. It was a curtain. It was just a little curtain, and there was one flight attendant. And I don't know what her job was going to be because we weren't in the air that long. I joke we got our altitude was so low we had some some branches in the landing gear from when we tried to hop over King's Mountain on the way from Greenville to Charlotte. I joke we traveled at nearly twice the speed of smell. It was a propeller. I mean, seriously, it was two seats, aisle, one seat. It was small. Have I made that clear? It's the smallest plane I'd flown on to that point, and it was a windy day. It was a very windy day. I, I don't know how we got high enough for the kind of turbulence we experienced, the rough ride. And when we finally landed in Charlotte, the rear end of our plane was going back and forth like this. And, and, and you could tell. And I, was, and, and I could see what was going on because the pilot had opened the curtain. And it was, he was telling us, I mean, he kept talking on the, on the microphone, but I kept thinking he could have just turned around and gone, y'all, it's going to be a bumpy ride. I think about in that moment, I had to have faith. I'd never seen that pilot before. I'd never seen that co-pilot. I'd never seen any of the air traffic controllers, anybody who was on the ground in Charlotte or Greenville. But in that moment, I just had to trust that all these mechanisms that the FAA has and that have been put in place to get us safely from one place to another were going to work. Ellen and I were blessed a week or so ago to to take a trip, and it occurred to me again as I flew on a much larger airplane in which I never saw the pilot, I never saw an air traffic controller, I never saw anybody, I never saw the mechanic in the hangar who had worked on it the day before, I never saw anybody who had done anything to make this metal tube go 34,000 feet in the air at incredible rates of speed, to fly me over an ocean, well, not really a whole ocean, but just a little piece of one, but still, to get us from point A to point B safely. I just had to trust that somehow all that worked out, and it did. We have faith in a more grounded sense sometimes, don't we? When we apply that sort of thinking to God, we, I think it's important for us to acknowledge the faith we exert and experience just by going through the day-to-day things of life that we don't think about necessarily as acts of faith, but walking out of your house in the morning, getting in your car to go somewhere, seeing your children off to school or your spouse off to work. These are acts of faith, aren't they? The writer of Hebrews lifts up some extreme examples, some big examples, but important examples that reminds us that we are people who, by nature, want to put faith in something. We, by nature, just by going through life, have to put faith in some people and some things. And he's calling on us, using these examples from the Old Testament, to put that faith in Almighty God. He's lifting up heroes. Painting a picture 
if you will, of, and putting it before us. I've taken that idea so to heart that I have over my desk at home, or rather I will have over my desk at home when I finally get around to hanging pictures on the wall, but it's there ready to happen where it was at my desk at the other house, a picture of my great-great-grandfather. It was a picture taken toward the end of the 19th century, and he's got that great big bushy beard, and he's got the same smile that everybody had in those old pictures, with you know, something like this. But I have that picture because he's one of those storied figures in our family. There's lots of stories about him and lots of twice-told tales. And, um, but the reason I connect with this man who died almost a century before I was born is because he was a Methodist minister. And a lot of the stories we have about him are about hardships he had to overcome Stories that people that he dealt with, situations he dealt with along uh, the road of ministry and accepting his call to ministry. He's got a whole story that's another sermon. But we know all these stories because he passed these stories along and things were written about him actually in his lifetime. And, And I have this picture of him because whenever I'm tempted to throw myself a pity party or or feel sorry for myself or this or that or and I encounter something that's seems daunting i just sit at my desk and he and i kind of look at each other and i think well if if he could handle what he handled i can handle what i need to handle that's what the writer of hebrews does for us he tells us the story he reminds us and gives us a picture of the israelites standing before the red sea god worked through moses to give them liberation from slavery in egypt God worked after much consternation. Pharaoh finally said, fine, y'all just leave. And they left. But after they left and started heading east toward the promised land, Pharaoh changed his mind and with his army pursued them, pinned them against the Red Sea. And I imagine how many people must have said, all right, Moses, now what? But God parted the waters. Now, we may have seen that happen in the movie, but who knows what it would have looked like in real life. Imagine a water just, and you've got a 50 or 60 foot wall of water here and here, and there's dry land, and Moses says, all right, we're going to walk through this. By the way, I wonder if it was muddy. Did y'all ever think about that? We're going to walk through these walls of water. Now imagine, about halfway across, they started to wonder if it was a good idea. But the writer of Hebrews reminded us they did it. Because they trusted God. They had faith that God would protect them. He reminds us of the battle of Jericho. When the Israel, he told the Israelites to take the city and, of Jericho. And when they said, well, how are we going to do that? He says, well, you're going to walk around the wall seven times. And then you're going to blow some trumpets. And the walls are going to fall down. Joshua was the leader then. I imagine how many people must have said, Joshua has lost his mind. But they did it. And what God promised would happen did happen. The writer of Hebrews offers example after example of faithful people walking where God would lead them, doing what God would have them do. And again and again, the people's faith in God is proof of God's faithfulness to them. For me, part of living this life of faith is being a follower of Jesus, even 
when it doesn't seem like a good idea. I would imagine that walking through the dry ground of the Red Sea did not seem like a good idea. Or blowing trumpets at the wall in Jericho did not seem like a good idea. But that's what the people were led to do. Their faith was rewarded. But it reminds us that faith is hard. Let's be honest for a minute and acknowledge that it's easy for us here and now to be Christians. In Florence, South Carolina, in 2019, it's not that hard to be a Christian relative to other parts of the world, at least not to claim the name of Christian. There might be people around us who think we're odd or annoying or different. I once knew one man who was from a part of the country outside of the Bible Belt, and I knew him through church, and he uh, had gone home to visit his family in, in this other place, and they asked him, so are you still into church? Just like you might ask if I was still into some sport or hobby. We're not putting our lives at risk, as are some of our sisters and brothers in other parts of the world. Yet we're called to be disciples of Jesus. Not just people who call themselves Christian, but disciples of Jesus. We are called to be followers of Jesus. Discipleship is not defined by having our name on the membership role of a church. Though let me be clear, every disciple of Jesus, I think, should be part of a worshiping local congregation. Discipleship is defined by our being a follower of Jesus. That means following Jesus even when it's difficult to do so. And that requires faith. That requires the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. When I was in seminary in those last two or three weeks before graduation, all of us who were about to graduate had already known where we were going to be going in ministry, particularly those of us who were United Methodists were talking about churches and what those churches looked like and parsonages and housing allowances and communities in which we'd be serving and people we'd already met. And some of us were really happy and some of us were a little grumpy. And, uh, but we, were, we, had, we had caught that disease typical of United Methodist ministers around appointment time, which is gossip. And we're talking about this, and I, I, I don't know, you know, sometimes when you're in a larger group, there's somebody you know but don't know very well, but you find yourself in a situation where you're in close contact. And a group of us were in a restaurant, and a classmate of ours who was from Korea walked in, and when he walked in, he said, come sit with us, come eat with us, and he did. And it was the longest I'd ever had an opportunity to speak with him. And we're all having that conversation, where we're going, what we're doing, how our spouses feel about where we're going and what are we doing. And, and so one of the people at our table asked our friend from Korea, so what are you doing after graduation? He says, well, I'm going back to Korea. And he said, well, what are you going to do there? Are you going to be serving a church? He said, no, uh, I'm going to help smuggle Bibles into North Korea. And that was our reaction. Somebody said, isn't that dangerous? And he said, yes. And then he picked up a piece of pizza and started eating again. And all of us were moved to silence about our minor gripes and complaints. It's easy for us to call ourselves Christian. But we have to work at it hard to be followers of Jesus. It can be hard. And no matter how hard we work at it, we will fall short. No matter how strong our faith is, it will not always be strong enough. 
And the writer of Hebrews reminds us that that's what's going to happen. And that's why Jesus came for us. I told you about a picture I hang over my desk. I want to tell you about another picture that hung over another man's desk. Karl Barth was one of the most influential theologians of the 20th century. He may prove to be one of the most influential theologians ever. But over his desk, he had a reproduction of a a 16th century work of art called the Eisenheim Triptych. It's a 16th century painting that decorated the altar of a uh, hospital chapel in Germany. It's called a triptych. It's a, it's a, if you took art history and I got it wrong, you can tell me afterward. But it, it was, think of it sort of as a cabinet that was closed. And on the front, you had one image. But then when Mass was celebrated, and it was built for a Catholic church, when Mass was celebrated, it, it would be opened so that you had three panels, all of which had been Concealed by the closing doors. But you open it and you have three panels. And in the center panel is Jesus crucified. On the panel on one side is the beloved disciple whom we usually consider to be John who wrote the Gospel of John. Consoling Mary and the other women who were there. And on the other panel on the side we see the figure of John the Baptist larger than life. Now if you're paying attention to the chronology... John the Baptist was dead by the time Jesus was crucified. But the artist was taking license to prove a point artistically. And John the Baptist is standing there and he's pointing at Jesus on the cross. His finger and his hand are elongated and enlarged, emphasizing the point to direct your attention to Jesus. Karl Barth had this over his desk a reproduction, small reproduction of it. He wrote volumes. And when I say volumes, I mean volumes. And I hope it's easier to read in German than it is translated into English because it is some of the most impenetrable, deepest theology you'll ever read. It's the kind of thing where you read two or three pages and then you get to the end and then you realize, I need to go back and read that again because I don't think I got it. This was the kind of brain he had. This was the depth of his theological uh, thinking. But he said in, his, in, in later works, all of this, every, all that stuff he attached to it for him was summarized in that picture. Being directed to what was important to Jesus. That's what our faith is about. Whatever else, whatever words, whatever systems, whatever else we put on it, it's all about Jesus. Hebrews reminds us faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Try as we might, we will fall short. So God offers us a life-changing, eternal relationship with Him through Jesus Our faith in that will waver. Our faith will fail us at times. And we won't be the faithful followers that God has called us to be. It will happen. But Hebrews reminds us to look to Jesus, the perfecter of our faith. When we do fail, we still have God who loves us, 
We have Jesus who's the perfecter of our faith because our faith is imperfect just as our actions are imperfect. Yet we have the Son of God Himself come to earth for us. We don't have to be perfect. We need to try. But we don't have to have it all figured out and at times we will fall short. But by the grace of God, we have Jesus. Jesus Himself is the ultimate example of faithfulness to God's calling, even in His case, to the point of death. By our faith, we are called to be Christ-like. We are called to try and live a life like we see Jesus living in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We will fall short. That's assured. But we have Jesus, the perfecter of our faith, who takes our best and makes it enough. And when we try, when we work at it, when we're willing to be followers who risk in faith, when we're willing to be followers who put our faith in God, even if it seems daunting or scary, whatever we feel God leading us to do, it will be enough. And to use a phrase I love, it'll be all right even when it's not all right. Because we have Jesus, the perfecter of our faith, who takes our best and makes it enough. I want to share with you some words from uh, Bishop Michael B. Curry, who's the presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church. He writes these words. My friends, faith is a gamble, but it's not a crazy gamble. It's a gamble on the God who loves us, a gamble on the God who has given us life, a gamble on the God who has shown us the way to live in love and compassion and decency and kindness. It's a gamble that the God who created us knows how to show us how to live. You keep the faith. Keep the faith when you feel like it and keep it when you don't. Keep the faith. Keep the faith when you think you know what you're doing. Keep the faith when you don't. Keep the faith on the mountaintop of exaltation and keep the faith in the valley of humiliation. You keep the faith in God who has faith in you, who has given you life because he has faith in you and that faith will keep you. Will you pray with me? Lord, empower us to keep faith. Empower us to be faithful to God, to you, and as it reflects the way you are faithful to us. Inspire us to be like Jesus, the perfecter of our faith. Inspire us, O oh God, to, be, to have faith in good times and in bad. Lord, to have faith in our strength and our weakness. To know, O oh God, above all else, that you are our God. Lord, we ask this all in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.